This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello, I'm Bruce Aisley. This is a podcast about making work better. Over the last 46 episodes or so, we've been looking at how to improve work, things that you can do to improve your work using science. Now, that sound you can hear, I want to evoke the scene. I'm in downtown Berlin. How about that? As I'm here, I'm standing here, I can see the Brandenburg Gate. Such uh, immense history, named after the, the uh, 1990s house DJ, Brandon Block, of course. Famously uh, had an altercation at the Brit Awards. He went on stage, I seem to vaguely remember, his mates told him he'd won a Brit Award. He went on stage and uh, Rolling Stone Ronnie Wood told him to F off. But, uh, of course, upside of that is they built a rather remarkable-looking edifice here, this gate they built as a tribute to him. So, uh, so things ended well. And, of course, actually, I, I remember this was... It was from here that Ronald Reagan um, gave that speech, didn't he, saying, uh, Mr Gorbachev, open your wall, let Brandon Block play East Berlin. And, in fact, Brandon Block did then play East Berlin, uh, did a tour with Jeremy Healy across the whole of the Eastern Bloc and of course that's how we got to where we are today so um, so Brandon Block truly deserves this incredible gate that he's got here. Right so I'm in Berlin today you get a nicer sound quality out on the streets I think you can you can get the sense of what's happening here. First time I came to Berlin with a group of Birmingham City fans, uh, my friends, we stayed in a dormitory in a youth hostel uh, for the evening of the World Cup final in 2006. Great fun had by all. Only time, second, I've stayed in a dormitory twice, I also stayed in a, uh, a youth hostel dormitory in Copenhagen. Less fun there. I've got some lovely episodes coming up. I've got Britain's leading workforce expert, Sir Carrie Cooper. I've got a special chat with a neuroscientist, James Doty who gives you a sense of the sympathetic nerve system, the amygdala, all the things going on in your brain and how work impacts them. I've got a couple of people who've tried real-life work improvements, experiments, and then I've got a session coming up on mental health and on uh, people who do contract work or side hustles. So some fabulous sessions here coming up over the next few weeks. But the reason why I'm doing this episode live from the streets of Berlin is because today's guest has been hitting my DMs. He's been pounding my DMs, asking me to, to get this episode out in time. He's got a book coming out and his book's coming out on the 3rd of May, so you'll see it sometime around uh, the time that you listen to this. You can pre-order it on Amazon now. The book's called Be More Pirate. Now, Sam Conniff Allende, the writer of Be More Pirate, has spent the, the, the last few years running a marketing agency uh, focusing on youth marketing and, and employing a lot of young people. And he really sort of believes that the spirit of pirates is maybe the salvation that young people are looking for. It's a fun bit of history. You can listen to this now. Now, I should remind you that you can listen to all of our episodes on the website, and that's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Now, I don't want to trigger your home assistance, but you can get these episodes played on your your Google Home Assistant or your Amazon Home Assistant. And you do it on the Amazon Home Assistant by giving the call sign and asking them to learn the Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat skill. Or in fact, you can just on think on Google, you can ask it to play the Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast. A couple of extra ways for you to listen. You might want to listen to this one while you're doing the washing up. So this is Sam Conifalende. He's got a new book out called Be More Pirate. That's out next week. Here's Sam. 
Right, okay, so you, you've written this book. It's about one-third history and sort of <laughs> reminder of some of these joyous piratical figures and, like, you set me right on Blackbeard and you set me right on a few pe- people yeah. who might be the, the iconic pirates along the way. And I guess the spirit of the book is this notion... Right, I'm putting words into your head, but it's this notion that there was a code of conduct about pirates. Yep. The pirates actually, because they were sort of self-organising mercenaries, yeah. they, they needed to be a degree of trust. There needed to be, be uh-huh. rules of engagement. So in the same way that you might sign up to the Navy... You didn't get any spoils of it. You signed up to the pirates, and and I can't guarantee it was it was completely uh, <laughs> communally shared. But there was there was a share of spoils, right? Yeah. So talk me through the pirate code. So it, it's exactly as you said. So I've drawn on a lot, a lot, a lot of secondary uh, resources, but also you know I, I fully believe in this. So I haven't put anything in there that isn't verified historical fact, as far as we know. Absolutely, it is the case that the pirates operated through a code, and it was law. It was punishable extremely in some instances by death or... or, or Although less, you say less than uh, is rumoured, right? Yeah. There was no gangplank. There was no plank, no walking the plank. That was Robert Louis Stevenson about 100 years after. Um, the, this precise... And we are, by the way, talking about the Golden Age of Pirates. And that's different from Somali pirates or Chinese pirates or lots of other kinds of piracy, which there's you know, some, some tragic stories around. This is a period of time, and I think it's relevant because it mirrors where we are now ideological conflict in the world, a a broken system, um, multinational corporations ripping the world of its natural resources and a a generation who feel that they've been robbed of their future. Sound familiar, right? And they, as professionals, largely stepped out of the rules and went and created their own rules. And that's my definition of pirates. It's not just about breaking the rules, it is about remaking the rules and they rewrote society. So they lived in this incredibly stratified world, nothing more stratified than the, than the British Navy at the time. It was a brutal existence, rarely would you get paid, poorly treated, and so they rejected it. And once life on pirate ships kicked off and became a, a popular movement, and I'll call it a movement, they instilled a set of values and principles. So fair pay was absolutely one of them, the antithesis of where they'd been before. Equal say was another, you know, because they were so badly exploited, they wanted every single person on the boat had a vote. Now that's a, a level of participative democracy that hadn't been seen at that point in the world. Uh, to protect the power, because they knew that power corrupts and the captains at sea, you know, for many months could become brutes. They created dual governance, a system that we're really familiar with now, checks and balances. And actually, it was, um, it's like Peter Drucker says, you've got the captain in charge of strategy and you've got the quartermaster in charge of culture, but they're equally important. And all these principles were then enshrined in a code. As the pirates set out on an adventure to, a, to an agreed mission, of which if there was no success, no prey, no pay, nobody got any spoils. So it's not like today, if the bank fails, then the, the leaders still get a bonus. None of that. You know, the kind of debates we're having about gender pay gap, none of that. Everybody's in for an equal mission because you sign that code at the beginning of the mission and for the duration of the code, it is law. Probably the reason why it's so compelling is that you, you venture beyond the world of pirates and you, you venture into people who have the practical spirit and, and to some extent they're just modern day rebels, right? So you, you know, you've yep. got Malala there, you've got yep. Elon Musk there. And yeah, you know, yeah. you, so you've got the some, king of the pirates. Yeah, yeah. So you've got some people who might anchor it slightly more if, if people aren't necessarily interested in 17th century uh, history. Yeah. But so talk us through. So, you, so you've gone through some of the, the principles there, equal pay, you know, the context, there was loads of war, there's loads going on. How can, how can you make that relevant then? So someone who's sitting in an office today, yep. how can you channel that? Your challenge to people, your invitation to them is to, to be more pirate. How can people channel that? And, and into their own actions. Can I give you two answers to it? Because there is a, there's a kind of a macro and a micro thinking to this. First off, I perceive in the last 20 odd years of, of, of running my own firm, of mentoring a lot of young professionals, um, the kind of projects that we're running, Liberty went from being a real outsider to 
uh, you know, it was only a few months ago we were awarded the Beamers Grand Prix for, for actually helping to contribute to a shift in our industry. This idea that our work has to contribute to something more than just getting paid and going home, you know, the purpose of your show, that now feels common language, that's something we're all very aware of, and it's in that kind of sense that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the person working at whatever great big organisation. What is your opportunity to bring about the change you want to see? And from all that I could read of the original pirates, I, I pulled out kind of five really key identifiers. They have to be seen together. Like I said, it's not just about rule breaking, it's about rule rewriting. They didn't just organize themselves in the classic way we do now for, for growth. They organized themselves as networks. They didn't let anybody steal the individual power. They would share that power so it didn't get corrupt. And these seem to be very practical steps. So once I then applied it back to the modern world, when I was going through all my thinking process, I found numerous examples. Yes, Malala totally fits that that moment of rebellion and it's that moment of rebellion that then escalates her to the level of power and influence she's got on the good she's doing um but chance the rapper you know fits that bill who is going to aspire to a career in hip-hop uh, and now wants to get signed you know he's absolutely rewritten the rule book completely by by winning a grammy so he's playing by the rules to one sense but absolutely rewriting them behind them so then it became a game you know then i was like right okay my pirate frame who else you know where else and so then you're like, right, let's try over here taylor swift she totally fits the bill because you know behind the scenes of what you understand about the way she's run her business what she stands for the, her, her ability to go and create fights to, you know you're like great okay but then over here you've got well actually fucking hell, behold, the entire uh, philosophy of blockchain well that completely fits the bill as well and the gap in between piracy's never gone away and the the message to to anyone in business or leading business is that Piracy isn't a you know, children's party theme. It's kind of been rewritten as that. It's actually a necessary functional component of innovation, economy, and actually capitalist growth. Without it, we wouldn't have seen the growth spurts that we've had. There was uh, you know, the monopoly of the BBC wasn't broken until a, a long-running battle with pirate radio, and as only as a result of pirate radio, the BBC diversified. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs wouldn't have managed to get the entire music industry together had. Um, uh, LimeWire and Napster not been such a threat. It wasn't just the failure of, of, of Netflix's blockbuster deal that brought, you know, they could see what was happening on online stream. Again and again, the ideas of piracy, and we're seeing it now in biotech and biopiracy, uh, and soon we'll see it in space piracy. You know, asteroid mining, where, where Elon is taking us, there is no doubt. You know, do you doubt? It's not just Elon competing with Richard Branson. It's there's a bunch of other guys in the shadows, for sure. And it'll be what they're driving forward with that will help all those other innovations come forward. It has always been, and when there is a new territory discovered, or when market needs are unmet, when there's systemic market failure, pirates will appear on the horizon. So beginning to rethink it feels really important, because here we are, wondering what, what post-capitalism or whatever else you want to call it means, you know, understanding that the way we've worked doesn't necessarily work. The, um, in one of the lines I, I quote in the book that you really switched me on to, this, that Cal Newport idea, that in 15 years we'll be laughing at the way we work. So we know we're at this moment of great change. So who do you look to to help you through it? I perceive in, in many businesses uh, and public organizations, there is a crisis of imagination at the top, you know, a difficult shortage of ideas. So again, where do you look? So piracy begins to be more than a, a nice metaphor or an engaging line or, or a kind of romantic association. Actually, it's a necessary functional component for understanding the change cycle that we're all in. The, the question I've got really is, and, and you give the pirate code, you, you give like a very clear code of, or the modern day pirate code. My pirate code 2.0. That's right, yeah. yeah. So right, and so like your number one is sort of make shit up. Number two, business <laughs> plans are dead. So it's, I guess it's, uh, it's trying to inspire a spirit of action and sort of counteraction is it yeah so if we accept uh you know 
I'm proposing that the history of pirates has been written out of history because it, it was such a threat to the establishment at the time. And that in, in so, in truth, represents how powerful they were, how powerful the message they was, because it was seen as seditious, because they were proposing workplace insurance. You know, their, their place in working class history is so pronounced, but under uh, appreciated. You know, some of the female pirate uh, figures are there inspiring the early proto-feminist groups. You know, pirate democracy, proto-democracy can be traced through to the, the American independence. So they were potent. And they, but they were taking place and sticking their fingers up at all of the institutions right in the heartland of you know, the, the evils of the slave trade. So it wasn't just the fight that took place between them. It was the ideologies. And they were turned, they were rebranded as enemies of humanity. And so I think the first part of the, the book is about the, the repositioning of them. Once you get into that, and then I think if we've, if hopefully we've won the intellectual kind of an emotional fun argument that they, they play this real ongoing pivotal role. And, and it was the work of not me, but the pirate economists and lo and behold that's such a thing uh, drawing on their work that proves their, their functional component the third part of the book I felt like I had to give something practical right so the code they had was in, entirely practical and you've seen the book over 40 years the first written code they think is from Henry Morgan in 1690 there or thereabouts um, there's only about five articles in there fair pay workplace compensation and some of the kind of classics 40 years later they're almost exactly the same word for word now there's no way these were written down in fact if they were written down they would have been quickly dispensed of because there could be a you know, death certificate um, so there's no you know wiki pirate or way to look them up but they remained consistent across generations across ships in different battles and that to me feels really important now we sit in, a, in such turbulence you know disruption is almost an overused word that you, we're totally met about it um, but the changes are coming, right? So we need something that's consistent across us. And if, as we know, our organizations are going in a completely different way to the one that we, we thought, uh, talk about it in the book, the um, average life cycle of, bus of business was 65 years, about 60 years ago, went, dropped to 15 years, two years ago. So just by my maths, that means, you know, another five years, you're talking sub five years as the average life cycle of a business. Now, we also know business growth in the UK. We're expecting the same time frame. We'll go from five million to seven million businesses. That's a completely different way of working. You know, you're not going to have one job in one place. They're going to be blurring and blending into another. So what's going to remain consistent? Because it's not the values written on the wall outside. It's the values that you have. It's the values that the people you collaborate with across multiple organizations are going to hold these things true. The only thing I worry about is that, you know, there's a danger of survivor's bias. That whenever you look at hmm. Elon Musk or Malala, yep. you know, survivor's bias, you say, here's their formula and therefore... You know, one follows the other, so their formula led to success. And what you miss is all the teenage girls in, yep. in you know, Taliban hold areas who, who didn't survive, or yeah. all, the, all the people who invested lots of money in, in ideas yeah. collapsed. And so there's a dangerous survivor's bias because that piratical rebellion didn't actually, it wasn't causally creating the success. Yeah. It's just a, a wonderful. Um, narrative element it's a, lo a lovely color to the story afterwards so i i totally subscribe to that and i and i almost apologize i think in the book because I, do, I don't want to just use examples of you know these predominantly male figureheads that have done this great kind of ideal of success that then becomes the the, the epitome of what we're aiming for not at all and i try to draw on and and repeat the last thing i think the pirates had in mind was you know long-term social justice or the fact that you know, 250 years after some of their practices would become inalienable human rights. 
they were working out something that was right for them. And that would be my message to the generation now. It is to, you know, the system that you exist in is largely broken and designing something for yourselves is the best thing you can do. Um, and in there, you find some of the greatest, I find the most inspiring stories like, you know, uh, Clay Davies, who takes on the Klan, is a, is a meeting in a bar. You know, the beginning of the Women's March is a, is a social media post. Uh, the, the riot cleanup notion is exactly the same. And I talk about uh, compound imagination at the end because I think strategy is all well and good but by and large quite often the biggest change in the world comes from some radical intention which i think we've got too little of at the moment and the pirates could teach us a lesson the sharing of those ideas and their ability to compound over time and i don't think that many of the greatest success stories in there were written out uh, as the plan at the, at the beginning but by doubling down on them again and again seeing it begin to emerge the notion of same way that compound interest works that power of compounding is how things really gradually begin to change and that's important for me. I think it really answers your question because it means that change sits with an individual. No matter who you are, how big you are, how well connected you are, what organization you're in, change truly seems to begin when a group of individuals begin a meaningful conversation. And that can sound glib, but all the 300 years of history in there seems to prove it's true. So if you were sort of advising someone, other than picking up the book and, and adopting Pirate, the Pirate Code 2.0, what would you advise people to do to try and channel mm -hmm. the spirit of pirates uh well the the, the pirate codes that i picked on has been you know, i'm in this privileged position of working with brilliant young people and, and their startup ideas or their ideas change the world or young activists and young politicians young artists and so i drew the the pirate code 2.0 as a suggestion you know, the original pirate code came from different pirates and they they adapted and adopted as they went these are just ideas that i've been you know slapped in the face by so the idea that business plans are dead was me and some young social entrepreneurs particularly from the Far East, and I was just asking about their business plan models, and they just laughed at me, like, business plans, granddad, and they have manifesto jams, and I was just like light years behind, and it's interesting, business plans are dead. In terms of the talks I've given, it's one of those which gets the biggest sigh of relief, You're just right. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> the notion that we're all subscribing to three-year forecasts, which by and large subconsciously we're all sat around knowing that they've been made up, you know, but the idea of thinking and actually having permission to work in a more agile sense. So I've just put those down as suggestions, you know, for anyone to take and lift, maybe some people will think all six of them are great, and I've, I've, I've seen some people begin that. I've had some brilliant ones already sent to me. Uh, I had an amazing one yesterday, the no asshole rule. is one way this guy runs his, his business okay. in Berlin. That's just it. Anyone who works for me, no, no assholes. We don't, there's zero tolerance for assholes. That's yeah. the whole business philosophy. I love it, and they're doing very, very well. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in assimilating a community of people who've got codes who are, who, who are putting principles above anything else and they're proving success because in this great big wonderful mess that leads to success that I think is what we're going to go through in terms of organisations, I think that's going to be what rises to the surface. Principles around which we organise ourselves by. So if I've given one piece of advice in the sessions, it starts with the act of rebellion. Go and find a rule that is stupid, that you know is stupid and break it. Yeah. And see what happens because in that you find your power that moment, that, that deep breath that you make when actually you, you, and you know, this is a line from you, but when you push back sometimes, it's surprising how easily things yield. And it's also surprising how much you find your power. And if from that you have a better idea for what should happen with that stupid rule, flag it up. You know, yeah. see. And if you've got five people following the same new rule, change begins to emerge. You know, in whatever the institution and the amount of times I've heard, you can't change. I work at X media agency or X government department. When five of you start to do something differently, you put the fear of God 
into those above you That's and change the beginning. Do you think then, right, so what you've just said there, I don't know if you read the Ray Dalio book that was out this year. Ray Dalio is this sort of like master of the universe of investment and he's published right. this book this year or end of last year, Principles, and he's, he's, like, he's, he's probably late 60s yep. and um, he's made billions. He, 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 you know, he styles himself in the book or quotes someone else in the book, styles him as the, uh, the Steve Jobs of investment, which I thought was... <laughs> good, good work, Excellent. Yeah, you should that one in there. But um, he, he reinvented the world. But he's got these principles that are very, very prescriptively what they do. So they've got an investment set of principles. And they've yeah. got an operating set of principles. For example, they video all of their meetings so that if anyone subsequently doesn't trust the decision making that went on there, anyone can go back and review how the decision was made. Yeah. So look, m- m- far less onerous than someone transcribing notes and yeah. taking notes, which creates the burden for the person reading them. Or another one, after every meeting, and this is the one that caught everyone's attention, after every meeting, everyone, in the sort of a black mirror style, everyone gives each other ratings for the meeting, including rating the CEO. So they'll leave and they'll say, Ray, yeah. in that meeting, I'm giving you three because you weren't fully checked in at the start yep. and I then felt your contribution was a touch aggressive. Right, so it, everyone gets ratings yep. afterwards. And in fact, he creates top trumps cards of the qualities of certain people because they found that they were hiring certain people into roles. Mm-hmm. And then they realised, that guy is just not the detail person. We hired him for a creative. We've moved him over to detail. He can't do it. Right. Anyway, so like all these things. But my point is, I wonder if what you've said there, that a few businesses are building these these principles or building their own manifesto, I wonder if there's a sea change moving from this notion of culture where you're trying to create an organisation where everyone has the same personality mm-hmm. into something far more concrete. You can be a different personality if you're operating within different principles. Is there a change happening there? Uh, yeah, so I think so. This is, this is, I think, where the book begins to, to go. You know... We're coming out of what uh, Schumpeter called the five great economic waves, right? We know that we're at the end of the the economic cycle of of the information age because we're facing redundancy and nobody quite knows what what comes next. My guess is the word that we've been vaguely using as, as purpose kind of begins to touch on it. Now, it could be some, something precise like the circular economy, or it could be you know, the Deloitte Millennials report, people are looking for more meaning in their work. It's all a bit vague and we're piecing our way through it at the, at the beginning of it. But bit like the Cal Newport 15 years hence thing I think looking back this will be one of those defining moments like the beginning of the you, know, you mentioned the mobile phone where from that point forward all business looks different and I think yeah five years ago it was words on the wall of businesses that you walk in that you know become eminently forgettable and anyone who has to put honesty in four foot letters is not to be trusted anyway but where we're now beginning to find ourselves I think I think purpose will move away but I think the notion is about transparency transparency leads to trust and that's kind of, I think, what we're looking for. Trust leads to good work. You know, it leads to good relationships. Um, leads to things that actually means our economy moves forward. And, and we're seeing at the dark edges, you know, a lack of trust really, really compromises us. So we see this in young people. I think you can take really inspired principles and then unite people around them in a way that you can't really behind very much else. In terms of an evolutionary step that comes next out of this, it's that ideal that there are values that we will hold true to that determine us. And that's... And- you mentioned something uh, earlier on, which was that most of the interesting people that you're seeing mm-hmm. are channeling the pirate spirit by having side hustles. 
that's a really interesting idea that, you know, actually side hustles and doing the things that aren't our job might be the things that make us who we are and make us our value. So I, I think this relates to the last point, because as soon as we start stepping into values and principles, a lot of people can kind of roll their eyebrows because, you know, well, we're here for shareholder value or whatever. So then you start looking at well, what matters, you know, what, what do we care about? Why do we really show up to do anything? You know, I was fascinated by the by the Good Work report and, and some of its findings, what it's pointing to, what motivates us to do things. And as we head towards, in some senses, greater automation, a larger amount of and in other senses, you know, different ways of using the tools around us. And I think it gives rise to the side hustle. Nearly 20 years of working directly with young people every single working day. The last three years, something immensely different has happened. And it's not technology, it's the mindset that sits behind it. And I think it's evolutionary. I think it's, it's Maslow level. Previously, we thought you only get up to self-actualization, I will give back and I see myself as more after a 20-year career. I haven't yet met a young person in the last few years where it's not there at the beginning. That An idea of, I want to have an impact. I believe I have agency and a sense of agency and a determination to do something. And I think the current manifestation, which is the notion of side hustle, it's an externalization of my desire to, to be someone and do something in the world. What we would have called again a few years ago, social entrepreneur, the idea of I want to do something that means something has joined the classic aspiration set. You know, is up there with I want to be famous or I want to be in music or I want to be in, in football. I want to do something. Is that legit though? Isn't that like, um, I'd love to believe it, mm-hmm. but you know that thing where everyone's CV used to have like, you know, interested in socialising, <laughs> yeah, yeah, keeping yeah. fit and reading, where basically that just meant all I do is go to the pub at the end of the day. <laughs> Does everyone claim a side hustle, but then if you sort of, you peered inside there? I think that, I don't know many people other than probably... Liberty and one or two other organisations that are even close to understanding it. Because the, the, the conversation around this usually begins with the word entrepreneur or business plan, right? Which are now exclusive language. So there's nothing that's talking about um, this at an earlier stage, pre-enterprise. Uh, I asked this question at the, at the RSA and, and one young, brave young person stood up and said, oh yeah, I absolutely, I hate the term entrepreneur. I call myself a startup kid. So I think that side hustle generation is, is a good term. Very few people have got a sense of how much is bubbling beneath it. And if they're not going to put their hands up to the kind of classic language that we call, how else are we understanding them? I worry that I'm overstating the case, but in the last, what, three and a half, four years, I have yet to be proven wrong. I think something really significant is coming off it. And I think the, the physical early manifestation is the side hustle. Behind that, I think actually there's a Maslow level shift going on, which gives me great cause for optimism, which takes us back to why I write the book, because I'm shouting at these guys, take control. Do not wait. You know, we need you. We need this level of imagination at a leadership level. Step outside the rules. Reject what you've been sold and told because it's bollocks. Uh, and begin. You know, the power is there. I see it again and again and again, Bruce. But I'm seeing the Be More Pirate as a manifesto to go and discover more of these guys who don't self-identify with the current channels. Maybe Pirate's going to identify with them. And really, you know, I want nothing less than rebellion because I think that's what we need. Resistance, frankly, isn't good enough. You know, Donald Trump memes are great, but that's not going to get us as far as we need to go. So a rebellion is what I think these brilliant young hustlers, change makers, idealists, whatever you want to call them, uh, should be inspired to have the confidence to move forward with. So, look, so, so through the book, there's constant ideas of mutiny. Of yes, like, mutiny. That's uh, what we're uh, thinking. <laughs> and, and people standing up to organisations in a, in a productive way. But sometimes, you know, you've got th- notions of carry a can of paint, like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. throwing a few uh, stones in the pond. And you've got this idea of good trouble. Yeah. Right. OK, which is consistent with all those things. Yeah. Can I just explain what that is? 
So Good Trouble I can't take any credit for. First, uh, there's an amazing publication called Good Trouble magazine uh, based in New York, and it celebrates the artwork of resistance. And it's, you know, I encourage anyone to go and, and spend some really well-spent well time looking at the beauty that, that there is in, in there. Uh, but that was inspired in its own turn by a congressman, um, a Democratic congressman, Congressman Lewis, um, who was lifetime politician and activist who was on the bridge in, in Selma, um, you know, so who, who absolutely knows uh, what he's talking about when it comes to changing the world. And after the Florida nightclub shooting in the States, 50 people dead, and you know, again, this conversation around gun crime and gun control, uh, and he leads a sit-in uh, in the House of Representatives. So, you know, this this elderly by now, you know, really well-respected figurehead of civil rights, leading a sit, you know, getting involved, you know, like leading people. Let's go and actually cause some change because there's a level of frustration. And he makes this speech a week after to a, a bunch of students and it encourages them to get out, to stand up, to cause some good trouble. And it just, you know, the hairs stand up on, on, on my neck because I think that is it. You know, this, this point I was saying about rebellion, how can you, how can you look... Uh, someone of that generation in the face at the moment and you know, be happy with what we're handing over. You know, the whole principle of, of, of our humanity was supposed to pass things on better than they were when you got them, right? We're, we're about to do the opposite. And here he's saying, fuck, you know, I fully support the idea of democratic progress and participation in politics, yes, but it's moving too slow, it's glacial. You know, I fully support the idea of education and what we're doing with our kids there, but fuck, it's just out of pace with the skills that we need. So what are you going to do? You have to cause some trouble. So is it a sit in here? Is it a demonstration there? Is it graffiti here? Do you, you know, I, I've heard this from guys who work at those kind of big autonomous, or, you know, they feel like automatons in great big mindless me media companies, but we can never make a change, but and so on this. You know, fuck, of course you can. You know, if there's enough, if, once there's 10 of you, say we refuse to work on that client because we don't, we don't stand for it, mm. what are they going to do? Mm. You, and, and you don't understand the power of your own voice. We, we've spent so long thinking there's no other way of doing things. And this, this small group, who I love and respect, they've been meeting above pubs, uh, talking about how they use their power in the creative industries. And, you know, they're preparing themselves for the next brief that lands. There'll be a multi-agency mutiny of, uh, you know, mid-level creatives saying we refuse to work on brand X. Right. Two or three agencies do that. What happens? Right. What happens? And that is, is good trouble. That really excites me. And I guess your point really is that trouble can start at a really small level. Resistance can start at a really small level and, yeah. and, and grow up from that. It doesn't necessarily have to be you're organising a 100,000-person march on Trafalgar Square. No, nope, absolutely. And, and, and you just got to... It's just a health... It's like an exercise. You know, once a week, break a rule. You know, until after a while, that begins to feel normal because there are some rules that are better to be broken. There are some really stupid things. And once you kind of you, you reach adult life, you realise half the rules have been made in a rush and, you know, to serve some other kind of purpose. And once you start finding your power, there's a question I've asked in some of the exercises and, and in a workshop. You know, when was the first time you really felt your own power in the world? And 90% of the time, people tell a story of, of being a child and they said no. And actually the world said, OK, then. And it's that. that, that that's what we have in all of us. And a tiny child can do it. And that's when you realize it. And yet we get it, we get it systematically uh, removed from us. So good trouble is the trouble you can enjoy. Good trouble is the, the trouble you're proud of to tell your friends that you did. Good trouble gives you a, a special feeling because you know you've pushed back against something that you strongly disagreed with. And I encourage everyone to try it more regularly. Every time I've seen you on this project, there seems to be more momentum developing <laughs> to it. it. It strikes me that the, you weren't clear it was going to be a book at one stage, but people were coming up saying, I love this. Yep. And then I saw you present somewhere and you were mm -hmm. in the, the process of putting the, the book together. What I, I, I guess to finish on... 
what are you going to do with this? Where's this going to go? How can you how can you take this pirate it, movement? It is that. And so it's, you know, I'm, I'm an example of my own thought around compound imagination, setting out a goal of where we want to go and achieve and let's try and get there. Um, pirates began as a metaphor. But once I'd done my research, I realized it wasn't a metaphor. It was a historic lesson. The, the ambition of the book is to uh, reposition pirates, not to cheapen it with some marketing terminology, but to reposition pirates from rogues to role models. That's where I think they belong. And yeah, it turned into a, began a conversation with Penguin. It, it could have nearly been a boring business book about purpose-related, purpose-first business models. And luckily that got, and then I've got pirates emailing me going, I am a pirate. Subject, you see my inbox, the, I've got an entire folder. Somali pirates. Dedicated to it. I am a pirate. No, there's, there's, <laughs> there's some real <laughs> pirates in there. Uh, I've had to, I've had to reply. There's a different email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I run my business in this way and I stand up for this and we hold this up as our principle. And I feel like I've untapped into a, a rich vein, a vein that isn't spoken to by the enterprise community or the startup community or the tech community because it transcends them all. A vein that isn't necessarily of an age, but it is of a mindset. And it's a mindset, the yes, that perhaps speaks to that, that side hustle generation, but there's no exclusion zone to you know, a woman in her 50s or a man in his 60s. But the appetite, the desire for shifting the gear, for, for, you know, there's a glib term, fucking shit up, but, you know, fucking shit up, meaning to create positive change. And I'm feeling it. So the book ends with a, with a call that terrifies me as I wrote it. It would have been much easier to just finish the book and hopefully there's some inspiration there. But I feel obliged to the, you know, just a handful of people each time I've given the talk who then drop me a line and say, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this pirate crew. And and the strength of the pirate crew is in its networked ability. It is anti-growth. When Henry Morgan you know, sacked Panama, which was a, a brutal and heinous act that laid away for the British Empire, but you know, morality aside, it was 2,000 pirate crew, the largest army they'd ever amassed, who weeks before had been individual crews and weeks later returned to being individual crews. That could be our power. Right. Organizations, individuals and enterprises, activists, artists, whatever, around the world who believe that there needs to be a greater degree of change, who consider themselves fooled with radical intent to be pirates what happens when they do come together so some people might question i guess they might confuse vikings pirates uh -huh. all manner of ancient bloodthirsty history weren't the pirates the bad guys yes this is a very good um point and i do like to to, to bring it up deliberately um uh, my publisher didn't always agree, but uh, I think it's really essential. You know, here we stand with, uh, you know, what black flags currently represent is terrifying. You know, I, the last thing I want first to... global brand. <laughs> yes, you called that. Yeah, right? yeah, first, absolutely. The, the, the Skull and Crossbones was the first global super brand. It absolutely was. You know, what, what else exists? We think anyone in marketing thinks it's um, Coca-Cola, uh, but 150 years before that, a brand was created, and, and this begins to answer that question. Yes, of course, there were some complete psychopaths, as there are in, in any form. Um, but the times that we're talking about, you know, I know it's moral relativism, but uh, your ordinary folk were enjoying the old public execution. Your military folk were indulging torture. The, the big business of the time was ransacking, you know, destroying cultures. Uh, the wealth was being created by destroying entire indigenous cultures and populations. So they were brutal times, right? And the pirates, of course, were brutal and they responded to that. But actually, they were far less brutal. And the truth uh, that's pointed to by a number of economists and, and, and historians is actually violence wasn't in their interest and they didn't pursue it. If you're a pirate ship and you don't have any backup or places to go and refuel, you don't want a cannonball in your boat, nor do you want to put a cannonball in the boat you're going to steal. So uh, you would have the most terrifying reputation you could to maximize profits. So this, this idea, this brand that they created actually was to reduce their level of violence. And again and again, there's examples of this. They, they exported their management principles onto other boats by rewarding captains that hadn't been bad and punishing those that had.
Uh, they had compensation in place for pirates who would, were injured, you know, who they could then stay aboard the boat. That wouldn't happen anywhere else on Earth at the time. The level of diversity they had, the, the stories of them over time, not always, of course, um, freeing slaves and then having equal rights within the pirate population. So actually, this notion of them being total rogues was partly encouraged by them, partly encouraged by the new mass media of the day, but actually it was core to their business model. So the last thing I want to do, because there were some total psychopaths and of course there was murder and loot and, and worse, but what I'm trying to say is separate that because that was contextual. And actually the, the interesting part, the thing I think there is to learn from, the thing I think that can sit alongside other civil rights and, and moments in, in progress or, or workers' rights and equality is this unexplored history. And once you look under the hood a little bit, the darker stuff actually is part of their brand and when you look to the facts there was a real core business model that sat behind it so yeah there is a, a degree of moral relativism but i think it's important to cite so they created this brand projection which was fear and terror yep. largely because by having that brand projection just made the day-to-day -day job easier for sure you know and if you and if you've gone out right we, we, you know, and there's really amazing like quotes from these guys talking about why would you go and risk your life for those bastards who are robbing from the poor when you could risk your life for yourself you know mm. and work with us and stand up against those who mm. would otherwise do want you know wait a minute this this language feels really familiar this language feels very much of the time right through to edward teach or edward thatch we don't know uh, aka blackbeard by and large the most famous pirate of his time uh, terrorising um, the, the, the eastern seaboard. I mean, he does sound balmy, setting fire to his sulphur-infused beard. <laughs> Didn't see it sound that normal. But that's living your brand, right? So he'd set light to his beard, cover himself in black, couple of pistols, and uh, there's two historians out there who'll argue that, then that, that uh, he's not on record for actually killing anyone. Okay. Uh, he had multiple wives, and he was known, there's letters to prove it, consorting with the colonial governors. So... He created this brand right. to cop out of violence, to allow his business to continue, and he just you know, became the archetype of brand piracy. And here he is, using principles Byron Sharp would be proud of. You know, his degree of mental availability as he came onto the horizon <laughs> caused the, the, the people he wanted to surrender to surrender. No weapons wasted, uh, profit gained. Sam, thank you from the streets of Berlin. I've uh, not seen much... While I'm here, remarkable city though, you know, Berlin. My colleague Thomas was telling me last night, you, you can rent sort of remarkably cheap accommodation here and, and beer is as, as little as a euro a, a beer. You cool place to live. If only we had a European passport to live here. And so from the Brandenburg Gate, I bid you farewell. See you next time. <laughs>